Hello and welcome to Full Contact Nerd, where we talk about fiction and storytelling in all its forms. From the weird to the fantastic, horror, sci-fi, fantasy, thrillers, mysteries, anything you can ask for, we have it. I'm Chris Alvarez and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Caroline Stevemer, author of The Glass Magician, published by Tor Forge, on sale April 7th, 2020. Thank you for speaking with me. Thank you for asking me. I really appreciate it. It's great to be here. Thank you. Um, so first, um, with any writer, I'm sure you had you have a whole bunch of ideas bubbling. Um, yeah. How did this particular idea rise above the rest and get written? Well, for a long time, I was fascinated with folklore about people who turn into animals. Not so much uh, werewolves as, although that's part of it, uh, swan maidens in Swan Lake, uh, uh, in Japanese folklore, there are uh, the kitsune that turn into foxes. Mm-hmm. And I had always been interested in that. And I began wondering what would happen if uh, that was just a standard thing that, you know, your family transforms into eagles mm-hmm. or uh, grandma used to be, you know, would transform into a seal but uh, Grandpa was a horse. Anything I, I decided, uh, as far as the traders in the Glass Magician, mm-hmm. if there's folklore about it in in the world, that's probably an animal that the traders can, some family of traders can trade into. Like the Chinese zodiac has animals in it, mm-hmm. and anything that achieves that level of folklore, I think, is fair game. Mm-hmm. The revelation to me was that women could be stage magicians in vaudeville. And I learned that from Moshe Feder, who was an editor. And uh, he told me about Del O'Dell, who is the vaudeville stage magician who inspired the book. So once I learned that there was more to stage magic in vaudeville than the man in the top hat with his <laughs> lovely assistant, mm-hmm. then the then the story really came alive for me. And I'd always been interested in the period of the very early 20th century, mm-hmm. but this gave me a chance to really dig in and research, and I really enjoyed it. Okay. So, yeah, let's uh, talk about what, about the book. Um, tell me about mm-hmm. the protagonist, the setting, you know, whatever detail you'd like to go into. It's set in 1905 in New York, largely in New York City, and on the vaudeville circuit. So the main character is a young woman whose father was a stage magician, and she's inherited his act. And in the opening of the book, the trick go- the trick she's involved in goes wrong in a very dangerous way. And at the moment she thinks she's going to get killed by one of her props, hmm. she is able to escape, and she's not sure what happened, but she later discovers she turned into a swan, hmm. And she has always been raised to believe that she's a solitaire. Most people are solitaires like you and me that have only one form. Mm -hmm. But some people who are sort of the 1% are traitors. And those families have a lot of money and a lot of power and influence. And they have a couple of drawbacks. The constraints on the traitors are... uh, largely until they control their powers, which happens when they're teenagers, Mm -hmm. until they can demonstrate the ability to control their shape-shifting, they are prey to a monster called the manticore. 
And the manticore feeds off the magic of traders too young to control their trades. And our protagonist discovers not only is she one such person, she had no idea that she was a trader. She has no idea how to control her trades. Mm -hmm. And she's drawing manticores like there's no tomorrow. So, mm -hmm. oh, so okay. she's in danger. And so hope, hopefully this doesn't, uh, this isn't a question that's revealing some of the plot, but um, do then, does that mean that the traders, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but do they generally train their own family members? Is that it's, how it works? Yes, it's very, they're very protective of their young and they, depending on uh, what you're likely to turn into, they are, uh, what's the word, accommodations made in the household mm -hmm. uh, so that there's, uh, there is space, she finds a space uh, where she has a chance to explore this, but it's a family that generally turns into seals. Mm -hmm. So there's water and she doesn't necessarily need water, but uh, that's it. Just happens to be the the household that she ends up taking shelter in. Mm -hmm. And I will. I promise you. I had no idea that when I started this book, the stay-at-home order would would <laughs> would go into effect at the at the the day of the launch, and uh, uh, people would be staying at home with their families mm -hmm. and. Uh, I found it a bit difficult to get uh, an action plot going with the constraint of having the main character stuck at home. <laughs> mm -hmm. huh. Interesting. But I, but I assume you overcame that obstacle. In, yes. Yeah. Yes, there is. She, she has, she finds a few ways around that. Mm -hmm. um, so tell me about the research uh, you did, you know, because this involves a historical setting and, and other aspects. Well, I love research, and I love writing things in a historic setting if I have a, an affinity for that time and place. So in addition to reading original sources, a, a lot of newspapers are online so that I can read newspaper articles for the day that I have in mind. You know, what were people talking about? Now, this is very much an alternate history, hmm. but uh, I tried to be, in small things, I tried to be as accurate as possible. I also read uh, secondary sources, and my secret weapon is... I love um, vintage guidebooks. Yeah. So I had, I had a travel guidebook, uh, which explained in great detail. For example, at the, in 1905, we didn't have pennies, nickels, dimes, quarters, half dollars, and maybe a dollar coin or a $2 coin. We had uh, different coins, and so I, smaller ones. And I was uh, very, I did use in one scene that got cut, a reference to a coin that we don't use anymore because I thought that, uh, you know, a, a two and a half cent coin or whatever it was, I don't remember right now, uh, would, would tell the reader, this is not the world we know. This, even though it's called New York City, it's not our New York City. Hmm. But in fact, that was too distracting and it wasn't an important enough detail. So I tried to get it across in other ways. And I, but the, the guidebook was a wonderful resource to, uh, for example, in 1905, there was a New York City subway. There were subway lines, and so my protagonist thought about taking it, but ultimately decided to take the elevated railway instead. Uh, so I'm also a very visual person, and the Library of Congress, among other places, has incredible visual resources of the, the posters for the vaudeville acts, the theatrical magicians, 
and they're so evocative and so wonderful. I don't know if you remember a book that it's been out 20 years, at least I'm sure, called uh, Carter Beats the Devil. And the cover of Carter Beats the Devil, at least in the trade paperback edition, is uh, an authentic poster. Uh, It's a poster that was used by, and I think it was, it was Carter, the, the great stage magician. Uh-huh. So since I knew nothing about stage magic, I spent quite a bit of time finding out what I could about it. And I, at one point, I'm, I've, I've lost it now, but at one point I had seen everything available on Netflix that Penn and Teller ever did. <laughs> <laughs> so every, every book I write generally has someone doing magic. And in this book, yes, that happens, but people are magic some people. And so that was a real challenge to me. So making that distinct from stage magic and making stage magic convincing required me to do a lot of reading about vaudeville. Mm. And uh, even I I live in Minneapolis, and Minneapolis was on the vaudeville circuit, as was St. Paul, which is just across the river. And I believe it was Groucho Marx who was quoted as saying, who was also, he and the Marx brothers were a big vaudeville act. the three slowest days in vaudeville are Christmas, Easter, and Minneapolis. <laughs> <laughs> what about research? And maybe you mentioned this earlier. Um, research into uh, mythologies about uh, sh- you know changing shape and animal forms and that sort of thing. I did my bit. I, I at least I feel pretty comfortable. I'm I'm better on folklore about birds than I am about. I mean, there's so much to know. I can't know it all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I really focused on swans, and I had been fascinated by swans. And, uh, oh, gosh, there's uh, an Ellen Datlow, Terry Windling anthology called Snow White, Blood Red that has a short story that a friend of mine and I collaborated on. Mm-hmm. It's called Seven Swans, and it retells the fairy tale of the seven swans in a baseball setting. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, I'm very proud of that. And now here, all these years later, swans again. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm fascinated by them. So um, what are some of the, the things in media, say books, movies, TV shows, um, that maybe inspired this work or, or similar vein? Wow. Well, let's see. I Well, I, I read Carter Beats the Devil and The Prestige in the same week. Hmm. And the novel, The Prestige, is very different from the movie, The Prestige. Uh, and I also watched, gosh, The Illusionist, which came out at almost exactly the same time as The Prestige, mm-hmm. which is not only uh, also about stage magic, but it's set in almost exactly the same time only uh, in Europe. Mm-hmm. So, and that The Illusionist draws on the the tricks designed by a particular stage magician from the, from the past. Uh, so, as I began getting deeper into the research, I was really happy to see things that I had learned from my research used by other writers. Uh, And I will say, one of the things I learned, I think the author is quite upfront about it, the prestige as a term of art in magic, uh, as the term used for the the sort of twist that makes it truly extraordinary magic as a trick, is not vaudeville slang. The author made it up. And now, in stage magic, people talk about the prestige of a trick. Hmm. Because because the stage magicians have, at least some of them, have adopted that term from the book, which I think is just fascinating. It's a two-way street. I'm speaking with Caroline Stevermer, author of The Glass Magician. You can find more information at carolinestevermer.com. 
If you like this podcast, please take a moment to rate it on whatever podcast feed you're listening to it on. These ratings go a long way in increasing the popularity of my podcast, and I'm grateful for any support you can give me. Please sign up for my newsletter at chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com. Please post your comments and questions about this podcast or this episode on Facebook at Chris Alvarez FCN or on YouTube at Chris Alvarez. You can contact me on Twitter at Chris Alvarez FCN or on Instagram at Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi. If you like military history, please listen to my podcast, Military History Inside Out, located at warscholar.org and militaryhistorypodcast.com. If you like outer space business, technology, and policy, please listen to my podcast, Spacewalks Money Talks, also located at spacewalksmoneytalks.com. Now back to the podcast. As far as the swan maiden things, I have a good friend, Ellen Kushner, who is an encyclopedia of folk music. And so because we were roommates for a while, long ago, after college, I learned a lot from her collection of music. She would play records of uh, folk songs sung by fishermen in the Hebrides and things. And there, there were folk songs about people who turned into seals, for example. Yeah. And then when I was researching the book, I ran across, uh, oh, let's see how to put this. In the 1870s, there was a World's Fair in Vienna, which is on the Danube River. And because it was such an ambitious undertaking, the city of Vienna actually changed the course of the Danube so that they could build the fairgrounds where they wanted to build them. And the World's Fair was a big disappointment, partly because there was an outbreak of fever. Yeah. And, and they... At the time, I'm sure we now think, you know, that it was something caused by uh, bad water or, you know, marshes or, you know, some sort of infection that they didn't understand where it came from and they were spreading it from one person to another. But I thought, as I'm researching this at the outset of the book, well, obviously, the Swan people who live on the Danube objected to having their river... <laughs> messed with and so they took it out on the people who were trying to enjoy the fair yeah that's pretty cool um thank you <laughs> well i thought i am on the right track <laughs> <laughs> so what about um actually i wanted to ask a question about the uh the vaudeville is it, are, are there any books that you came across that a fan who wanted to do like after reading your book if they wanted to do a little more research into the history of it any particular books that stuck out as is really well, fun. The most recent source that I've come across that I really loved is uh, a man named Frank Cullen, C-U-L-L-E-N, who is involved with the American Vaudeville Museum, which uh, is available online through, I think it is uh, the University of either New Mexico or Arizona. Mm -hmm. But if you Google on American Vaudeville Museum or Frank Cullen, I'm confident that uh you would get there and he i'm sure has written things uh i'm blanking on her name anyway there's some excellent vaudeville scholarship that's pub been published in the past few years so mm -hmm. that i was i was already writing the book before i mean i'm not up to date on the latest and greatest but mm -hmm. i will definitely pursue it uh i i just find it fascinating I, at one point i worked with a guy 
whose grandparents were vaudeville stage magicians. His grandfather was a magician and his grandmother was his assistant. And he said, you can't believe what carving the turkey was like at our house. <laughs> <laughs> so apart from the topic uh, that what this, this book is based on, um, what other um, books, TV, movies, music have inspired your writing in general? Wow. Well, I'm... I'm one of those people who got into Lord of the Rings in early, early adolescence mm -hmm. and never really came out. I had, I grew up on a dairy farm in the country and having, and that was another thing about animal transformation, because when you're on the farm, mm -hmm. your attitude toward animals is a little different from at least my friends who grew up in the city. Mm -hmm. And I thought, how how would you ever get confused if this was a fox or your grandma? I mean, <laughs> you'd know, right? Anyway, um, growing up in the countryside and having woods and fields uh, to run around in, uh, I really resonated with the Lord of the Rings uh, dedication to giving us every kind of landscape and naming things and giving it history and languages and so forth. So, that was a big influence. And then on the very first day of college, I met Ellen Kushner, who is a, an amazing novelist, among other things, uh, because her, her room was just down the hall from mine, and she had a Tolkien calendar on the wall. Yeah. I said, I really like your calendar. Mm -hmm. And we started talking, and we really haven't stopped talking since. I mean, <laughs> you know, there are long, there are long intermissions now because we don't live anywhere near each other. But hmm. uh, it, it was a common language. We came from completely different backgrounds, but we'd read a lot of the same books, like Ursula Le Guin's Wizard of Earthsea. And, hmm. uh, oh, gosh. Uh, I, so I, I've always had a fairy tale element in almost everything I've ever written. Hmm. That's cool. What would you say the soundtrack of this book would be? What a great question. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Um, golly. Well, definitely the pit orchestra from oh. a vaudeville theater. So okay. the sense of, oh gosh, Susan marches and uh, Victor Herbert, the light operetta sorts of things. Uh, and then for the more sinister transformation things maybe uh the sort of uh, I, I like when i'm when i'm listening to uh when i'm when i'm working there there are different kinds of music i like and uh i've really been enjoying the advent of the soundscapes that people create and put up on the internet so that it can be a winter day in a library and you can mm -hmm. hear maybe a fire crackling and the wind blowing outside mm -hmm. and pages turning uh, perhaps a clock striking. So something like that. And conceivably, uh, in, in other books, I've, I've used it more. The kinds of heroic soundtrack music that, like Alan Silvestri or, um, oh gosh, I'm blanking out, the guy who did the soundtrack for uh, Brideshead Revisited. Hmm. I'm blanking on his name. But uh, these sorts of very stirring uh stirring chase scene pieces of music mm -hmm. uh, that I can have sort of when I'm walking and, and have my, my headphones on, I, you know, as I'm walking, I found very frequent. I picked this up somewhere 
right before sitting down and writing, it's very, very helpful to take a really brisk walk for about 30 minutes because the areas of the brain that are involved in writing get uh, the blood flow increased. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, and the other thing I do, in addition to music, I will I will put on some kind of ambient soundtrack that I associate with writing, and I've created as many paired associations as I can, so the, the music, the light, uh, and I just randomly chose a kind of hand cream, you know, hand lotion, that the scent, they say that that's, the scent is the most evocative, I mean, it can bring back the past very vividly, so what I'm trying to do is when I, scent, when I smell that hand lotion, I need to write... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, would you say that tra- when a character undergoes a transformation, is it a jarring or or intense event, or is it more a smooth, um, it, flowing it, kind of thing? At first, it's very difficult. She, it, uh, the protagonist, can't figure out what causes it. And mm-hmm. in the first few attempts that succeed, uh, she was sure she was going to die. Mm-hmm. And later on, she discovers something. I mean, it's it's tricky because if you know. You can't trade unless you're in fear for your life, but you won't die because you're going to trade. Mm-hmm. And even if somebody shoots a gun at you, uh, you're not going to necessarily trade because you know. Well, anyway, it's mm. it, it, it's harder than she reckons on, and it takes the whole book for her to really master it. Mm-hmm. And I spent a lot of time arguing with myself about what trades exactly and i decided that when you trade you trade whatever you're wearing goes with you and then when you trade back for, for example if you've been in the river and you trade back then all your clothes are wet but you mm-hmm. still have the same clothes okay. because in 1905 a woman who wasn't wearing her glove all the way pulled up you know into place would be if you had your wrist exposed that would be a scandal so I, I couldn't, I know other writers have done wonderful things where when you, when you travel through time, you, you, you arrive naked and I don't even know what happens if you have fillings. I have no idea, <laughs> but uh, I knew I couldn't handle that. There was no way I could, I could make that an entertaining thing. It would just be one long wardrobe check. Uh, so I made it as quick as I could. And I, to myself, I've decided if I, if, if there's something in her pocket, that goes too. Mm-hmm. But nothing that, if it doesn't fit in, the, I mean, if she has it under her arm, that does not trade. That stays behind. Hmm. Okay. Um, so you mentioned taking walks. Is there anything else maybe out of the ordinary or different that you do to complete your, your drafts? I would not recommend my method to anybody. <laughs> I'm one of those people who tries to outline and fails. I, I diverge from the outline almost immediately. I write. I have to write the whole thing all the way through. I, I used to call this the, my sponge rubber dinosaur draft. Mm-hmm. You know, there are those toys where you get a, a sponge rubber pellet, and if you put it in water, it increases in size. And then you can see once it's once it's fully absorbed the water, you can see that it's a toy dinosaur, like a sponge dinosaur. Yeah. And that's my first draft. I so underwrite, and my first drafts are ridiculously short. And then I have to revise them and revise them and revise them. And with this book, I realized part of the joy for me in doing this, I mean, it's a very time-consuming way, and you can't ever impress anybody with your opening chapters because the opening chapters are as bad as they ever get when you start. And then 
ages later, many iterations later, they're they're fine, they're good, but you had to write the whole book m many times over to get them that way. Mm -hmm. But part of it is there are certain things that I know when I'm writing, and this book had an example of it. I knew that there, one of the motivations that the protagonist has to solve her problems is that she has lost her job. She had a gig for two weeks working at a really good theater, and because there is a non-compete clause with one of the other magicians in town, her contract gets canceled. So she's out of work. She can't perform her act because it includes tricks that the other magician already uses. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I knew that that was the case, and I wrote the entire book, and then I rewrote it, and what was really troubling me was, that's crazy. Magicians steal tricks from each other all the time. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's part of what they do. So to have, what is this non-compete clause? And so for me, the joy of writing those final drafts is figuring out, sort of isolating what the problem is. I know that this is how it is, but why is it that way? This makes no sense. And so in trying to make it make sense, I will often discover something that's in the book all along that I didn't know. Yeah. And in this case, I'm not going to go into detail because spoiler, but I, 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 was, I, was, just, I was reading the book along with my editor. I, I didn't know that that was in there, but look at that, and it makes now it makes perfect sense hmm. to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how has your approach to writing changed over time? Ironically, when I, this is something that happens frequently, and I, I hate to admit it happened to me. Writing full-time was a big adjustment after having worked full-time and written in my free time for my whole career, my whole life, basically, uh, from the time I got a job. And this used to be my secret life. I would never talk about it at work. I would never say, P.S., I'm way more interested in my writing than I am in your sales figures. <laughs> I tried to keep it very, very separate. My jobs were always admin jobs. I was always samurai secretary. And <laughs> I felt like this was my this was my secret identity was being a writer, but it really <laughs> meant a lot to me to keep it secret. And ultimately, first there was an adjustment where I went part-time and shared with the people that I worked with that I was a writer. And that had advantages and disadvantages. And then ultimately I went full-time uh, in 2006, uh, and I actually got less done when hmm. I was a full-time writer. I got way more done when I was working full-time. Hmm. And, and I, I wish it were different. And now one of the things that I've learned is how to make myself write without uh, forcing myself to write, how to make it, and, and I have some excellent techniques that used to work and don't. <laughs> hmm. I, I think overall, I, people may have recommended this book before, but for me, my favorite how to write book is not actually how to write, it's how to become, it's how to be a writer. It's called Becoming a Writer by Dorothea Brand, uh, B like boy, R like Romeo, A, N like Nancy, D like Delta, E like Echo, mm -hmm. Becoming a Writer. And it was published in the 30s, and it's about developing that double person, the writer inside and then my outer personality, the, the samurai secretary, the person who comes in mm -hmm. and, and creates order in the workplace and is very, very efficient. And you should see my files at home. It's just laughable. There's none of that here. Uh, <laughs> but that, that outward person who protects the inner writer. And 
I found that incredibly useful as far as training myself. When I had time to write, I used the time to write. I didn't use the time to alphabetize my socks. Uh, <laughs> and um, once I was able to, it, it, may, it only makes sense that if I have three times as much time, I should write three times as much. But that is not what I experienced. Right. So I've, I've had to be a lot more uh, crafty about tricking myself into the frame of like using the hand lotion and the music and every every paired association I can to try to make sure that it isn't uh, a decision. It's not a question of, am I going to write? It's a question of, have I written? And so for me, it works best first thing in the morning. And uh, maybe if I'm really gung-ho, in, in the final revision of the novel, before it's really, really, really ready for the editor, I will try to, to really lock myself in with a printed copy of the manuscript and my laptop and then key in the novel again, start on page one and key it in. And that way I'm dropping out a lot of um, duplication. Hmm. And, and it's so much easier to see on the page for me than it is to see on the screen. And uh, in this particular book in the glass magician the copy editor saved my bacon again and again because i'd written so many drafts of the book that i had the same piece of information the same dialogue conveying the information multiple times in the final draft and the copy editor said well you said this on page 23 and here we are on page 50 do you want to do that again yeah. no <laughs> i'd like to keep this one and and delete the one that happened earlier or whatever. Mm -hmm. So there is a very intense, like long weekend length of time in which that final, final, final revision happens. And it's one of the best things uh, in my life. I, I don't know why I put off writing when I love it so much. <laughs> <laughs> cool. I'm speaking with Caroline Stevermer, author of The Glass Magician. You can find more information at carolinestevermer.com. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to rate it on whatever podcast feed you're listening to it on. These ratings go a long way in increasing the popularity of my podcast, and I'm grateful for any support you can give me. Please sign up for my newsletter at chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com. Please post your comments and questions about this podcast or this episode on Facebook at chrisalvarezfcn or on YouTube at chrisalvarez. You can contact me on Twitter at Chris Alvarez FCN, or on Instagram at Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi. If you like military history, please listen to my podcast, Military History Inside Out, located at warscholar.org and militaryhistorypodcast.com. If you like outer space business, technology, and policy, please listen to my podcast, Spacewalks Money Talks, also located at spacewalksmoneytalks.com. Now back to the podcast. So we, so you've mentioned your previous, uh, work before, um, did you, did you have any other non-writing work that, that influenced how or what you write? Well, I majored in history of art in college and I hadn't realized until I got out and started telling stories basically on paper, how much I'd picked up from, of what kind of training an artist got in the Renaissance, for example. So I wrote a book called When the King Comes Home where the narrator, who's first person, is a young woman who's being trained to be a painter. Hmm. And I used a lot of the 
research that I'd done for, for papers. And there were women artists. Mm. <laughs> Not very many, but um, but there were professional artists who were women. And I uh, was overjoyed. There, were, there was very little known about them when I was in college. And I was always pleased to find out that, oh, look, this, this woman made her living that way. Mm. Maybe she was the daughter of a painter or what have you. Mm-hmm. Were there uh, major sections of the book, of this book, that you had to cut out um, when it was going through editing? Maybe a character got cut out or, or events? I am such an underwriter that I generally have, I, I will have scenes that I know happen, and then it's a question of inserting more beads on the string, so mm-hmm. to speak. Putting I know something comes in between those two scenes. And generally for me, it is how the, the main character feels about things, because as somebody who doesn't, it takes me a lot of focus to really realize I have a feeling about something. <laughs> so that's always something I have to go back in subsequent drafts and add. And the editors often help me figure out when I'm ready, when it's done, that it needs more, more yet. Uh, but there is, in the in the case of the Glass Magician, there was um, a section where I had I had done, oh, I would say two thirds of the book, and I knew what the ending was. And I, I thought, okay, I'll do that. Usually I write in order. I will write the ending while I would do the research and figure out this, this piece that goes in between. Mm-hmm. And when I got in touch with the editor, she had seen the draft that had that gap. And I had been revising the manuscript on my own while she had it. And when she said she was ready to edit it, I said, oh, don't, please don't edit that draft because I have this draft I've been working on. And she's and, and it because there's this gap between and she said I I didn't see any gap I, I so I sent her the new draft and she very kindly worked from that and then when she sent it back to me I realized I could no longer identify the place where the gap was <laughs> I didn't need that section at all mm-hmm. one of the reasons it was so hard to write was it was the part I would have skipped as a reader huh. so I yeah. yeah I, I have to profit by that and keep that in mind. Isn't that one of Elmore Leonard's rules of writing? Don't write the parts people skip. <laughs> I hadn't heard that, but yeah, that's a, it's a good one. Yeah. So this <laughs> very is very tricky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now this is a bit of a whimsical question and you may have answered it already. It sounds like you might've, but I'll ask this. Um, when you were young, was there any, uh, power, technology or a fictional setting that you yearn to be a part of or to have? Well, when I was a junior in high school, I counted up how many more days I would have to ride the school bus before I could move to a city. Hmm. (laughs) I was very eager. I love the countryside, but I was very eager to live where it was possible to have, oh, recycling and trash pickup and things like that. Uh, and I could, as a reader, I was always very suspicious of books where a group of, say, brothers and sisters go through a tran- to, through a portal into another world. Uh, I would have been, I would have pushed them away, out of the way, and jumped through the portal to get to another world on my own. <laughs> but I, I would rather read about the things beyond the portal. I, I don't really. The Narnia books are great, but I, I don't really care about the kids. I'd really rather focus on that world on the other side. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So did, so we've mentioned uh, 
some of your writing techniques and, and what you've done to complete the book, but did you have any, uh, any difficulties um, finishing the book or getting it published? Uh, it was one of those things where um, first there was a, a, a publishing is just glacial as a, as a business. The time scale is just glacial. So everything takes much longer than it does in other industries, I think. I mean, maybe there's a slower industry than publishing that I just <laughs> am not thinking of. But patience is a huge virtue. Patience and persistence together have gotten me far. But at first there was a long delay on the publisher's side. And then, most frustratingly for me, there was a long delay on my side where I just dried. My mom had died. I'd been her caregiver for seven years. And the day the site, the contract came to sign was uh, 10 days after my mom had passed. And even though I, had, I wanted nothing more than to have this book be what it needed to be, it just, it was a tremendously barren time for me. And I have, so fortunate, I have a very good friend who taught me, pull one weed every day. And by sometimes just writing one sentence a day. And of course, you know, 10 sentences and then you delete nine is sometimes how, how I would get to one. Mm -hmm. But I had to, and, and also, I mean, by, by that time, I was a full-time writer. How could I possibly be so hopeless? Uh, and, and it was just, I just had to stop being proud of anything, just be humble and say, look, I can't, mm -hmm. but I'm not going to stop. Yeah. And it, it was the not stopping. And that I'm, I'm actually now so proud of, and this is a really special book to me because uh, it, it was transformed uh, from the, in the very beginning, it was going to be under a pen name. It was going to be a mass market paperback. Mm -hmm. And over the years it got transformed. Now it's a hardcover under my own name. I'm so incredibly proud. I think they've done a stunning job. The cover, the book design, it's absolutely beautiful. I'm so proud of it. I got to work with Claire Eddy at Tor, who is just a master editor. She is just brilliant. This book is so much better than it started out to be that I, 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 I have to take that as the silver lining for how long it took. This book began in 2009, hmm. so it was more than 10 years in the making, what with one thing and another. So not to sound glib or, 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 or goofy about this, but it sounds like you, you underwent your own transformation <laughs> very oh i hadn't thought of that actually yeah. wow and, and, and uh oh thank you and and i say that actually because i wonder if any of that you know change that you experienced made its way into sort of the emotional um growth of the characters i the, hope so i hope so i i tried very hard to keep the emotional there's a an emotional connection between the protagonist and one of the other characters and in this kind of book, very frequently, that kind of emotional attachment moves pretty fast. And in this book, it's pretty, I, it's been called courtly. Hmm. And, and yet I felt like that, that is what it needs to be in this book. This is, this is how it happens. Uh, to try to be a little more real and a little more adult mm -hmm. and a little less, um, like the books that I love where, <laughs> uh, you know, people, People find each other quickly in some of those books. So, <laughs> no, I appreciate that. 
So what is your either current or next writing project? Right now, I am working on the sequel. Mm-hmm. And it is a two-book contract, so there will be a sequel. Uh, the end of the first book has resolution, but there are questions that are not answered. Mm-hmm. And sh- the main character has some major questions that she needs to go after and get answered. So the first book took place in New York City on in 1905. And the sequel takes place in 1906. So it takes place in San Francisco. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that took some research. And I, I'm still working on it. So mm-hmm. it's a work in progress. Yeah, historical stuff is cool. And this sounds real. And, and plus, I think vaudeville is, is very interesting. And, and the magic, you know, everything you're describing is really cool. So this sounds, the book sounds really interesting. Apart from the fiction, what you could learn, what you could pick up as far as history goes. Thank you. Thank you. Well, again, it's not our New York City, but mm-hmm. I am trying to be as, as close as I can get in some respects. Mm-hmm. Um, so where can people f- find you online? Do you have a website, social media? I do. I have uh, a website, carolinestevermer.com. Mm-hmm. And earlier website, uh, the URL is in the back of Glass Ma- is at the end of the Glass Magician. Uh, but I'm in the process of moving from that to carolinestevermer.com. And I... I'm fairly recently in Twitter as C. Stevermer 3, and I'm really enjoying that as a way to uh, keep in touch with friends and see new things that are coming through and, and be advised about things to watch out for. And really, I, I'm very excited. I have been very not a socially... Uh, social media person mm-hmm. at all. And so this is a big transformation. <laughs> nice. And let me, I'll spell this for, um, for listeners, your name. C A it's a uh, C A R O L I N E. And then S T E V E R M E R. All right. So, uh, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final I, thoughts or words? I, I so enjoyed your website, but I, I'm intrigued by the name Full Contact Nerd. I really appreciate it and enjoy it. And I'm curious, where does that come from? Um, so it sort of came from a friend of mine who, um, so a couple of things. So the Full Contact Nerd, well, the nerd part is for, you know, quote, nerd stuff, sure. sci-fi, fantasy, us. horror. People all like that. us. Right. <laughs> yeah. And Full Contact, um, since I since I do photography, I interview people, Um I write some stuff about the stuff I come across. You know, the idea was it's like full contact, you know, with all the different aspects of uh, Ah. nerd stuff that's out there. You know, books, film, TV, music, video games, anime, cosplay. Even better. (laughs) Cool. So, yeah. So so that's where it comes from. So, yeah. So um, thanks for speaking with me. Well, Good luck with the with the podcast, and I'll be listening to other episodes. So it's very enjoyable. Thank you. And I, I really appreciate the fact that you break out by the timestamp where in an interview various topics are. I thought that was a great feature. Thank you. Oh, I picked that up from other people who have come before. <laughs> <laughs> other trailblazers. Very, very handy. <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd, please subscribe. Please also rate Full Contact Nerd and review it if you can. 
I have many more options to nerd out on sci-fi, fantasy, and horror. You can check out my website, chrisalvarez.com. That's Chris without an H. I have 20 mini-blogs on the site covering sci-fi, fantasy, horror, gaming, writing, mysteries, folklore, mythology, and many more topics. You can find my video playlists and my original videos on YouTube under Chris Alvarez. I cover sci-fi short films and games, fantasy fiction, horror short films and games, video and board game design, and more. You can get interesting news on fiction and fiction studies on my Twitter page, Chris Alvarez FCN. You can find cosplay and convention photos on my Instagram page, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi. You can sign up for my newsletter on new books on my websites, chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com. Thank you for listening and keep imagining the past, the present, and the future.